Welcome to the Disruptor Series podcast, where we listen to and learn from the people who are disrupting business, culture, and life. Here's your host, Rob Schwartz, CEO of TBWA Shiat Day New York. Thank you for tuning in. We are here with uh, thought leader, digital prophet, futurist, Shingy. Oh, hey, Rob. That's you. That, that'll do it. I just like going Shingy now, like one word like share. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to get into, you know. First names, last names, just shingy. You know where it came from? Please. It's actually a uh, it's a family name. Hmm. So I'm one of ten kids, and people said to me, "Hey, where's this shingy? You know, where this thing whole whole thing come from, man?" I'm like, "It's it's what do you mean? I mean, I'm an Australian, and there are two things you do in Australia: with a truncated name or elongated." Right. So my name's David. No one's ever going to call me David. It's you know, it's like you, Rob. Nobody calls you Robert, but it's David, Davo. You know, so David's my name, but it's Davo, Davy, Ding Dong, whatever. It's elongated or truncated. And so all of us were called Shingy. So it's just stuck with me. But when I speak to my family, we all call each other Shingy. Really? Yeah, it's just a thing that happens. See, I would, I would Dr. Seuss it, like Shing 1, Shing 2, Shing 3. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, because there's four boys at the bottom of my family, we were just called you boys. So when anybody's in trouble, we all get a kick in the ass, that's for sure. Excellent. Well, we're going to get into all of that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we're thrilled to have you. And you, uh, you're in for a special show out there. This is, this is really good because um, Shingy is uh, one of the smartest people out there. And um, he's just... A hoot. Well, thanks, man. So we were uh, in Cannes together. We, we chatted a bit. Uh, we um, actually uh, worked uh, on, on your show, as it were. Uh, but uh, did you get a chance to see any of the creative? Like, what was your sort of takeaway from Cannes? You talked to all the thought leaders. So, yeah. you know, maybe tell us the Shing take on Cannes. Yeah, every year I get to educate there, which is pretty, pretty amazing. Jim Stengel, uh, do the young innovators, um, young creatives. So it's really good to be able to educate, give back, especially to the sort of young, inspiring creators because they're the next, the next flow. And if I'd had that when I was a young kid, that would have been probably changed my path. I would have gone into the, I don't know, accounting business or something. But I, honestly, to be fair, I, you know, Robert, it's, I'm so sort of scheduled while I'm there. I get one day, and that one day is mm. Saturday. So my Saturday is to go down, sit in the pavilions, you know, sit in dark rooms, look at all the work, look at the context, wander around, hope I'm not getting harassed. And then go to the awards, and then sort of that's that's the hurrah. But in terms of the conversation, I mean, you you literally talk to always, you know, the most yeah. amazing people in Cannes. So, like, what you know, if you close your eyes, you would say, I don't know, two things from Cannes were what? Well, there are two things that I saw that I thought really, really were amazing this year from a theme. And I love going to Cannes because it is the Oscars of our creativity. And what I think is most amazing is that for you see a few years out a trend, and then it starts to really land at certain awards so effectiveness for example mm. one thing that i did see there are two cans i'm going to give you more than two i'm just yeah, going to yeah. give you i'm going to rattle off some <laughs> some experience here but there are two cans there's a can that is the pavilion and people actually all the palais people spend time watching the work thought leaders like yourself mm. on stage doing amazing things and we also then sit in these dark conference rooms off the Palais, but in hotels with suppliers, friends, buddies that you could probably see in the bloody city you live in, heads up. However, then there's the late night creative, which are the, that's the second part of Cannes, which are these young creatives that haven't yet had their career potentially mm. fulfilled and they're trying to f- still figure it out. So they're, they're, I tend to try and hang out with those young punchy cats because that's where I get a sense of it. So one thing is PSA. Nobody, does, nobody wants to do PSA, a lot of PSA work. Mm. They want to move things ahead not just because it's you know it feels good they want to disrupt exactly like your series says they want to do things but they also want to do it with brands and they want to get paid for it 
that's frankly part of that trend. Mm. So that you know, if you see that for many years, PSA typically gets highlighted because good emotional work wins awards, no doubt. Mm-hmm. But how's it actually move the brand forward, and what does it do to help people pay rent? That's very, very important. So you have got to supplement it. But the two things that I thought were really amazing was the quality of work is through the roof. Agreed. It's unbelievable quality, and something that I've been talking about for many years is brands have to get their POV right mm-hmm. because at the moment, if we looked at every news show today. Probably not CNN, but every other news show, if you take away whatever the, 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 the broadcaster is, it all looks the same, man. Yeah, We've got true. the same people talking about the same stuff all the time. Everything's breaking. I don't know if it's broken or mm-hmm. whether it's new, but it doesn't have a POV. Mm-hmm. So when I look at the new tools coming out from the Samsungs, from the Nokias, from the Reds, from the Canons, even the Likers of this world, I mean, they're producing amazing products for professionals, but amateurs have got their hands on it, mm-hmm. which are creating POVs. And so there are, there's a way that stuff could look like, oh, that looks like something that comes from a brand because it has a distinct POV. Mm-hmm. What I do think is interesting as well is analog was remarkable this year. Mm. I mean, the stuff that really stood out for me could have been done a thousand years ago. So, all right. So there's a lot to unpack, as usual, with your stuff. <laughs> um, but what, one thing to recap for a second, which I think was very important, is that you have hit upon there is the creativity of can. Yeah. Which is both with thought leaders and rising stars. And there is the, we'll call it the commercial part or the mercantile part or the. Yeah. Um, yeah I like that. Uh, yeah. And I feel that too. And, and um, have you seen a rise in the mercantile part? Yeah, definitely. And I think it could be credited back to Jim Stengel, super smart when he was CMO of PNG, to take brand marketers to can to say, if you want to move away from marketing reports that look like zigzags, ups and downs, ebb and flows, all about commercial spend, then you need to understand what creativity really, how it gets celebrated. And I think there's two important platforms for that. I mean, I think can still matters. And I would say that one does as well. I mean, the one club would do amazing work. Mm-hmm. It's, just a, it's just a different type of element. But the mercantile that you call it, well, obviously this year, I mean, Snap had that wonderfully um, subtle... <laughs> Ferris wheel out front, of which they said, you know, and I, I, you know, initially I thought, oh, what's this all about, man? I've obviously taken, it didn't look like the right PMS for their color, by the way. It's a little <laughs> bit too, a little, a little too, yeah, lemony. A, a little bit too lemony. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't as canary as I think the, the Snap logo I think really the is. Pantone to be fair. 302 versus 306. That's I'm right I'm there with you. Yeah, and you know, and being an old print guy, I think that's kind of the, the mode for me. But what I think is interesting about it is that until I heard what they said, is that they decided to give back to can because, you know, consumers have been so great to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was actually quite poo-pooey of it because, firstly, it's 120 degrees there and nobody was sitting in it. <laughs> God bless them. <laughs> but, you know, when I see that commercialization of it, that becomes a celebration of the industry on itself mm-hmm. and not necessarily the creativity. Take, not this year, but the year before, Samsung was the brand of the year. Mm. Now, I've seen Samsung, Heineken, McDonald's, Burger King. They're the ones I can think of just immediately. Right. In, in recent years, but Samsung was the brand of the year. Now, what I celebrate with them is the fact they turned up, man. Mm-hmm. You couldn't turn left or right without bumping into some sort of Samsung product, thank God. They had their own house where they, they hosted a bunch of amazing events. In fact, they did something with Sleep No More where they did an experiential with a just a Samsung gear, the bog standard mm. $80 Samsung gear that you can put on your face, although you do need a $700 phone. But you go into this room and they had this beautiful, intimate Sleep No More experience. Mm. And then on the Palais, you know, consumers could bump into their product. And I thought that was really good because if you're going to be celebrated as a brand of the year, you should your brand should bloody well be there, I suspect. And I just wanted to, to say with the reflection of Cannes, I love it when brands are celebrated and turn up. Mm. And the, the mercantile piece is that 
it's not necessarily the commercialization of other brands. You don't see Samsung advertising there right. outside of being the brand of the year. You see publishers, media, and agencies. Mm-hmm. So getting back to that part of it, now that's where it becomes even sort of more laid of confusion. You have publishers like AOL, HuffPost, Yahoo, Vice, BuzzFeed. You have all of these people who turn up, Refinery29. They mm-hmm. either turn up with brand or they turn up in meeting. Yep. So there's a subtle brand and there's a soft brand. Or at party or uh, absolutely. Um, or they just a vec yacht. Yeah, and by the way, we probably stay in Cannes long. I know you do. We stay there long enough to see the circus tents pop down, and then suddenly Cannes goes back to what it normally is when yes. nobody rolls in. Yeah, and it's kind of it's not about colors and squeaky colors and all that. It's it's, it's actually a, it's a circus. It's it, literally the circus comes to town, rolls and... in, and we do the thing, happy hands, and the circus tent comes down, <laughs> and we roll up the the circus and move on. Probably to Ad Week next or something. <laughs> D Mexico for me. But what I think is interesting is that there's also then this other layer of that really of that brand experience today, which is the data piece. So then you have people like uh, AT&T turn up, and mm-hmm. you have who, but they're talking about things like programmatic. So then you have Discovery turn up, and then you have, you have all these other brands. So they'll talk about sort of immersion, or you'll talk about IBM, really, Watson. Mm-hmm. So they'll turn up and talk about data. I mean, the year before last, everyone talked about AI. There was an AI-developed de- magazine by the drum. Hmm. I thought that was quite amazing. But when we start thinking about machine, where does the man come into it? And so you've got, you know, you've almost got three things. You've got brands that are turning up because they're celebrated. You've got media turning up because we're platforms. Mm-hmm. We're platforms. And, and we're producing content on platforms. Right. And then you've got agnostic platforms that have no content: Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, mm-hmm. uh, the rest, Instagram. They're all unless you put content on it, they're useless. Right. And they're trying to sort of. So everybody's trying to have. And a piece then of the this. third piece is the agencies who are kind of charged with figuring the whole thing out. But there are, then there's two types of agencies, and isn't it interesting in our industry where we are today? Because in fact, there's there's multiple types of industries, but broadly there's two: there's media agencies and creative agencies. Mm-hmm. And here's a hypothesis that I have, and you know I think there is some truth to it, and, and that is media agencies today are trying to justify their job, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is they don't own any assets, so they are a business facilitator. Yeah, so they're really there to educate brands, clients Mm -hmm. on what it is that they should be doing and how they should be doing it and how they should be measuring it. And then creatives are also trying to figure out what their land look like because at the end of the day, they don't own anything that scales. Mm -hmm. So you've got all this amazing creative. Not all of it actually ends up touching a person, but you've got this archive of ideas. And so, you know, I think in the the creative world, there's still the, the margins and the mystery. (laughs) <laughs> well, again, as usual, there's there's a lot to Sorry. unpack there. No, no, it's good. I think you know what I should uh, um, let everybody know. I mean, your actual title is digital profit, yeah. and I think it's uh, <laughs> that's profit uh, p h p r o p h e t. So I think the things that you're starting to suggest here. Um, what are we going to be living with in the future, and what's going away? Maybe. Right. So for. Well, there are two things. I mean, the question's so broad, Rob. But there are two things we're really talking about there. One is: is there an adoption of technology that's going to help disrupt how people think about and interact with the currency of their life, mm-hmm. whatever that is, mm-hmm. based on need, mm-hmm. not based on day part, which is what we grew up with television. Mm-hmm. Have we seen any of those disrupting technologies in current years? No. The last one was ten years ago. And that was the smartphone. Right. And it shouldn't be called a phone because that's a feature of that device. But whatever, dude, it is what it is. People still call big screens in their living rooms television, but the last thing they're doing is watching TV. Right. Let's get that right. But it's just, a, it's just an anchor for a need state. 
By the way, in Italian, isn't it still like macchina, not even car? The machine. The machine. Yeah, that's right. But I think what's interesting is if you, if you think about it today, we've got and then we've got wearables, right? So you've got mm-hmm. things like you know I'm seeing yep. you wearing an Apple Watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, today, the challenge I would say with an Apple Watch, it has to be tethered to your iPhone. Mm-hmm. And, and it, as a standalone device, it doesn't do much more than the iPhone it does. So the adoption of that isn't isn't going to sort of revolutionize the category. Although, although I think I, I mean I like a lot of what it does, but I think it's a fashion statement. I think it does as much for fashion and style as it would for uh, utility, which I know, God forbid, something should just be a thing of beauty. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think the contrast between analog and futuristic looking is really the, the category of, you know, the wearables. I mean, there's hundreds of wearables out there. and they, mm-hmm. A lot of them do a lot of what your phone does. People tend to get very euphoric and excited about it, then they drop off. I mean, my, I, my Apple Watch lasts about four hours, so I have mm-hmm. a real battery issue with it. But from a, from a bragging right, it's kind of cool. But I have, And, by the way, I also love the word haptic. Oh, haptic, of course. So I like to say haptic. Why not? <laughs> and, and the feeling of it on potentially on your wrist doing some hapticing. It's like literally like a happy tick. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like a haptic keyboard back on my, back on my phone. Sorry, I didn't mean to but, derail but you. What I, no, but the point is there's, a, there's a, a revolution in hardware. Yes. And maybe some adoption, maybe mm-hmm. not. So we're still trying to figure out wearables. We're still trying to figure out whether the Internet of Emotions is really a thing through hardware. You know, and all these things. are So the current disruptor is is interconnected devices are actually transparent because they're all, what they're doing is they're, uh, they're creating service. Mm-hmm. What that service is doing is creating time. Mm-hmm. So they're giving you the ability to do something with that spare time. Now, what are you going to do with that spare time? What uh, you used bu- to do. Buy more technology. Well, what you used to do is sit in the living room and watch bloody television. Yes. But, but if everything's becoming more efficient, what are you doing with that time? Today we're being distracted by screens. So I've been saying for a long time that I think that the, the, uh, the iPad replaces the laptop the watch, repl- sorry, the yeah, the iPad replaces the desktop. The phone today replaces the iPad, and that the watch should replace the phone. But the challenge, and, and for me, I'm a little guy, man. I mean, I can't really carry my phone around; it throws my hips off. <laughs> so I have to carry a big old Merce now to carry my bloody phone. I but mean, the screen size, I think, I'm not sure I'm ready to watch. Um, you know, Doctor Zhivago on my, on my but you, watch. But you're not pri- the primarily during your day. You're not watching videos, so you will pull mm-hmm. that device out to watch videos. But on that thing, you could probably do all of the things you need to do, particularly when it goes with audio. Mm-hmm. So when they produce something that doesn't look like snot running out of your ears, you'll end up with something that feels like. <laughs> And I would love it if those buds were actually black, not white. But that's me. But I think it'd be amazing if. You know, once once we have the dialogue, and you've seen that, you know, obviously with Alexa, mm-hmm. uh, obviously with Apple coming out with their version of it. Uh, we've seen it with Google Home. Mm-hmm. The oral part of that is pretty magical. Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about that because I think that's been coming up more and more, which is uh, what you say, you know, the, the oral part to these um, these devices, Siri and Alexa and mm-hmm. what have you. I mean, the penetration numbers I've seen, I've not seen anything north of 10% in terms of mass Adoption, yeah. Um, maybe my data is not uh, as current. That's uh, probably right. But uh, and I want to pick up something you said, which is um, technology seem to work better when they're in some parts intuitive, in some parts, hey, I'm already using this thing, so make it better. Yeah. So, uh, and I think we we talk, we like to talk. So I can see the Alexas of the world and the series of the world um, working. However. The speed of adoption seems slow. 
Yeah, and I think the big part of that and the reason for that, Rob, honestly, is because of their, their currently closed ecosystems. When they become open ecosystems, so that the proprietary parts of those pieces are available in multiple devices, not singular device, because I don't actually think the Google Home product or the Alexa product look nice. Mm-hmm. I don't think either of those exist in my... They, they do, but they're hidden in my environment, you know, so I'd like them to be perhaps embedded in a different brand. Mm. So they're currently not platforms. They're, they're standalone devices that are helping to market the owner of that brand. Mm which is very much an Apple vibe too. Yeah. So they're closed ecosystems. So when that becomes open, I think we'll see at least a version of that. The other thing, however, is that there's a there's a human psychology, which is the other part of the... Ma- so we talk machine, there's the man. Mm-hmm. We talk about things actually really working in a... Always progressing and everybody wants the latest thing and they always want to be able to communicate in a way that they've never communicated before. Do they? I mean, I actually... Yes, I do like speaking, but I don't like talking to myself. Right. So do I really want to speak to my earbuds that are speaking to my watch? Maybe, maybe not. But as somebody who tries to use a lot of technology all the time, I look at some things and think, yeah, this thing is totally not going to work. Or this, actually, we're going to have to think about human behavior differently. And the challenge with that is to adopt a new habit, you have to be prepared to break one. Mm -hmm. And so what are we going to do in that psyche to say, this is so important to me that I won't do this other thing. I'm just going to focus on this thing. But, you know, it's it's, it's almost like... And by the way, this was your challenge to Google Glass. I think I saw something online where you were... Oh, always. And I think because, you know, we all rush to try it on. And as a glasses wearer, I'm Mm. kind of deeply offended by people wearing things on their face without increasing their vision. But whatever, dude. But I do think that what's amazing, though, is this, is that it's counterintuitive to how people really want to work. Yeah. So Google Glass was a great idea. Don't get me wrong. I thought just, the film was really good. I wasn't sure about the actual uh, <laughs> Google Glass. but They're pretty amazing. I, I got it, very excited by the promo film. It's pretty amazing in terms of its capability. But because you can do so much, you won't do anything. Mm. So if you compare that to Snap's spectacles, Ooh, the yeah. polar opposite is that's premised on fun, not surveillance. By the way, did you see the Royal Caribbean um, partnership between Snaps and Royal Caribbean? Yeah, pretty and they, amazing. And they did underwater uh, Snap. I thought that was great. It's amazing. But also the format, circular video. Yeah. So when you see circular video turn up in your social feeds, it's coming from spectacles. So there's a POV. It comes back to that. Yeah, production, yeah, yeah, production. Yeah. But, but what and, it, and just, just on that one point, though, I, I think you're 100% right on POV because – uh, every time I feel like Snap's not going to succeed, they do something that is uniquely Snap, mm. like those underwater goggles. And just like you say, that circular video feels uniquely them. And also the principle of why you'd wear them. You're not going to wear them all day, every day, and look like sort of a human turd walking around town recording stuff. You're actually going to put them on just because you want to go to a barbecue and celebrate fun. Yeah. Because what they've done, you know, they've decided that fun is their thing, man. Yeah. And I love that, where that's what people want. Fun got punched out of it, seems like, the social platforms about... 18 months ago when it became so the, right. you know, and, and so, you know, I think that's really going to help them. The other broader challenge, however, is that because, the, so the, let's think about that human tribe thing. I said people don't want to talk to themselves, perhaps. You know, where that technology of the future really could end up going is, you know, something the size of a grain of rice. There's a company mm. called Hoaxed who chip people, and they, they wanted to chip me in Nordics, and I didn't have time for it. Mm. Uh, but it's a little chip that goes kind of in the, the thin part of your hand here between your thumb and your index finger and allows you to have an RFID chip. And you can program that thing to do different things like open hmm. up, a you know, d- d- swipe into your membership, into your gym, for example. Hmm. So there's there's a utility there. But I had been reading that there's a uh, technology that could be embedded into your brain that's the size of that grain of rice. And it would allow you to connect to some sort of universal Wi-Fi, which doesn't exist today, but assume it does. And you're able to mm. rent information. So if I'm standing at the ocean, I could see that there's a tide going and that the water is only 20 degrees. So it's not mm. a good decision to go into it. But how does that information come to you? Is it visually? That's where Google Glass was going. Mm. Is it orally? Maybe that's where, you know, was it a memory? 
Uh, is it in your voice? Is it another voice in your head? I mean, I have voices in my head already, so I probably don't yeah, need more in there. Yeah. But what I think is interesting is that we have these technologies that are definitely available and capable. The broader challenge is that how are we actually going to adopt them and how are we going to make it feel like it's a movement? And I think the screen-based technology, if I think about the difference between young people and old people when it comes to smartphones, if you observe them, the only difference is font size. Hmm between old people and young people. We've all had it in our hands the same amount of time, 10 years. We all act like adolescents on that bloody thing. Right. And font size, and, oh, and the way old people text, they text like that. But what I do think is amazing, finger down on the screen, hard, yep. tap, tappity-tap, yep. single finger, chicken picking. But what I do think is amazing, they don't have thumbs. No thumbs. Old people don't have old, they don't no have thumbs. thumbs. But what I do think is amazing about that technology, though, is that it, it seemed to serve a purpose, and that purpose was... Uh, you know, internet in your pocket, as naff as that sounds, mm-hmm. 10 years ago, was pretty amazing. Yeah. And it is still today. Well, listen, 10,000 songs in your pocket. I mean, that was the promise. That's an, an incredible thing, you know, about iPod. And imagine being somebody like Sony Walkman, having that brand Walkman, and not seeing that that was a moment for them to, to, to sort of to think about what does walking mean to, with sound. And, you know, Apple Yeah, come well, on. Sony missing it, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah. I do want to go back to... <laughs> This chip thing, because I think this is uh, this is your magic as a futurist. Um, and I, and as long as I've known you, uh, you always have lived, you know, uh, you know, several years ahead of the rest of us. And that's what I, you know, one of the things I really, uh, you know, value about our our, uh, our you know relationship. The chip thing to me, what you said is very interesting. One thing to me seems like a no brainer. I would, you know, staples the wrong word, but I think there's a put a chip in my skin, mm. like an earring, for example. Okay, that makes sense to me. Put a chip inside my body in some way, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. Uh, do you think there's a difference in the chip deployment? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, it's, but it comes back down to human psychology. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's got to do with the health of the body. I don't think it's got to do with is this going to actually do something bad to right, me. Right, because I eat hot dogs. Correct. <laughs> so there's a, there's a challenge. And also, but I, I think it's got to do with almost like a, a, a tattooed type culture, hmm. which is if you believe in sort of ink on body, maybe you will do. You will do the. You'll be sort of first in line for the chipboard piece of technology. Mm-hmm. The benefit, by the way, may outweigh the pain of it going in, and the recovery, or will it? I don't know. The challenge with RFID chip. I mean, you know, it's not it's not readily accessible today. But but I love your example. I'm on the beach. Mm-hmm. I have a chip, whether it's in my ear, in my belly button, or in my brain. You know, we'll figure that one out. But I love the fact that I can look out in the water and I can say, oh. There's actually sharks nearby. I'm, I'm not going to surf today. Right. You know, I mean, that would be a great utility. And it seems to me these technologies that work work best when it's utility first and then something else. Although Snap may be a different story. But it is a utility before it gets fun. Absolutely. But only when the utility, I think, is, is it sorts one or two things. When it is you can do anything with this thing, then you're not going to do anything. Mm-hmm. It's like a, it's like asking a creator to be creative and give them a blank piece of paper right. and say solve a problem. Like I'm sorry, what a problem right. I solve. A narrow brief is the most creative thing. Oh my gosh, obviously. But I do think that the the broader challenge with all of this is there's a lot of capability. Are humans going to want to relate to it that way? And also understand there's a marketing piece to this whole thing as well, which is there's a bragging right of pulling out whatever is that object. And, you know, the vanity mm-hmm. plate, the Apple Watch is a classic example. Mm-hmm. There's a bragging right. There's a bragging right to the white headphones. There's a bragging right there. So if it's an invisible piece of technology that just serves you, I think that's really useful. But you're going to fumble around 50 different ways on your phone to try and get that today. And you still think you're probably more capable. But again, if I'm Tiffany or if I'm Cartier and I'm a jewelry company, uh, I would really try to figure out, okay, let's make a piece of jewelry 
that is as iconic as the love bracelet oh, than actually is a utility. Rob, I absolutely completely agree. However, when you think about utility, so it comes back down to DNA. So each one of those brands you talk about have an incredible story. But they're probably not thinking about the future of what that connection means. Although all of them are about connection. I love the connection to that brand. I love somebody. That's why I gave them that brand. Mm -hmm. There's a real connection to that whole thing. And they're probably not having the foresight to see all of that. Mm -hmm. But take somebody super simple like Louis Vuitton. It's, not, it's got nothing to do with technology, but it's got to do with something they did on the phone. They just have a very simple app. It used to be called Amble. I think, hmm. it's, now, I think it's now called Walking Tour or something really oh, naff. Right, of but what they do is they provide these, and I love the simplicity of it, which is you land in a city you go to. You go to Tokyo for the first time. You can download a walking tour from an influencer. I hate that word, but let's use it. Of somebody who's interesting, and they give you a different point of view of a walking tour that you'd never find anywhere else. I think for New York City, it was Rachel Weiss. Hmm. And if they're smart, you may actually wander past one of the stores. Right. And that, for me, bridges the brand. Now, what's the DNA of Louis Vuitton? Travel. Travel. Journeys. It's not, yeah, it's not the $3,000 tote bag that you know fabulous young women are wandering around with. It's bloody travel luggage. So if I think about that, these guys have said, hey, we, we want to get back to what we're doing. We're going to do this thing that allows you to amble around in a way that's really unique from people who, by the way, love this brand. And that's the travel piece. I think what we've, what we've done is we've got very shiny. And what I mean by that is people rush to platforms, which means the first thing they value is popularity. And we have to be careful there because if there's popularity, the counter to that, so niche is a new mass is a term I've come up with. And I think that's true because I actually don't want to hang out in mass all the time, bro. I'd rather hang out with people that are kind of, hmm. you know, countercultural and they're kind of more diverse in their thinking. And I tell you, man, they're not hanging out with people that wear chambray shirt and docker pants. And that's broadly some of these popular platforms today. And so the counter of popularity is engagement, long time, dwell time, deep thought, mm -hmm. lots of conversation perhaps. And that can happen in different places. Like, you know, the messaging platforms I think are really amazing mm -hmm. to watch today. Mm -hmm. So there's a privacy piece to the public culture of which we're part of, which we have to watch. So you've got a couple of kids, right? How I old do. are they? Uh, 21 and uh, 19. So are, are they both on Instagram? Oh, my God, yes. Is it an open Instagram or a closed Instagram? Uh, Set to private or public, do you know? The one I can see is public, but public. I'm sure they have private ones. So why I think this is interesting is that if I speak to high school kids, a lot of kids will say, yeah, they're on all the platforms, WhatsApp, WeChat, right. you know, whatever. But most of them are set to private or they're in SMSing. Yeah. And so there's actually more intimacy that can happen in a private place. The popularity mm -hmm. piece of it, I think, is something we use in the industry to measure. Because, you know, when I speak to startups, the first thing they say is, oh, we have three million users. I'm like, so what? How long do they spend with you? Where do they spend with you? How long do they, you know, what's the completion rate? What are, we, what are the things that we look like that feel like I want to spend time with you, mm -hmm. not just skim across you? Because it's not for a lack of time. It's for a lack of attention on the things that we really care about. And if they're particularly wanting to target young adults, what is it they're doing for their need? And let, I'll get back to that because I think about... We have to get back to that because I have a big question. And I think about four hours ago, we talked about, you know, I don't think it's about day parting. I think it's about need. What do I mean by that? I mean, today, you, when I wake up, I want to accomplish things. Accomplishment might be one thing. Check mm -hmm. my email, find out what's going on in sort of messaging threads, et cetera, et cetera. The sex thing, it's, it's, throughout the day, I might want to relief. So I might want to go and check out what's going on in politics because I think that's comedy at the moment. Or if I want to achieve something, I might want to go and, you know, look what stocks and bonds are doing. <laughs> or if, you know, there are, there are certain things that I do that are utility-based that support my ebb and flow of my needs throughout the day. And sometimes brands do a really good job of delivering that to me. 
and not just this blanket, hey, I'm just going to put billboards up or do print ads or do TV ads and hope to gold people skim across them. Well, I love what you've laid out here, which I would, I guess, maybe we invented something, uh, which would be the attention journey. Mm. You know, we talk a lot about customer journey, what have you, but there might be an attention journey. Bracket that for a second. I want to come back to your phrase, niche is the new mass. And let me ask you, what's the implication then for fame? Is fame important? I mean, how do things get famous? Because you just told me that we're going to be in these little tribes. Mm. We're going to value engagement and maybe, you know, uh, duration of time Mm. with some of these brands. But we don't have this common notion of, okay, so what's famous now? But who cares about fame, bro? I mean, for me, I mean, you're creative. You care about fame and fortune. God bless you. Now that I'm a CEO, I care about fame and fortune. Yeah, that's right. We added the fortune dynamic to this. If I speak to most people in organizations, they're not looking for that. They're actually looking for, not in their work life, they're looking for recognition and contribution. Mm. They're different human traits. This fame, dude, this fame, this karaoke characters of what we, I mean, fame can come fast and come quick. The challenge is, you know, where does the real notion of, uh, where does the power outside of fame exist? So let me give you what I think is my hypothesis. It's going to be less about this influencer culture today, which is somebody who doesn't organically consume a brand is suddenly endorsing that brand, and you see a very good execution of it or a very bad execution of it. And we see that all day, every day. You know, we see that across the world. We know that because that's our business, yes? Mm-hmm. The flip side of that is... I actually think it's about peer-to-peer, especially for interconnected closed networks. So if I were to speak to these young audiences here and say, hey, are you guys in WeChat, Snapchat, blah, blah, the answer is yes, yes, yes. But the answer is, and are they closed? Yes, yes, yes. So there's an inter- intimacy that's happening there that's peer-related, not celebrity culture influence-related. It's not top-down hierarchical. I think that's actually... Collaborarchical. And I, I, it's, it's, certainly, it's definitely horizontal. Mm-hmm. And because you act like a peer and you are a peer... Uh, and by the way, who said that popularity is, is the thing that we want f- to be famous? I think that's an ebb and flow. And I, I, don't, I haven't spent enough time in that hypothesis, but I do believe that the platforms of which we have created today have allowed people to quickly become famous. And a lot of people are actually enjoying their livelihood based upon fame and not accomplishment or craft or skill or... Well, let, let, me, let me calibrate it. Um, like musicians, for example, you know, the music industry, for example, before you calibrate it, okay. the music industry, for example, find a niche. So yes. if you look in a genre today, there's, there's genres within genres within genres. Right. Where back in the day when I grew up, there was like, you know, country and rock and maybe some hip hop and, you know, maybe we confuse that with rap back in the day. I'm older than you. So I'm you very, know what I'm saying? I'm very and now we have, you know, there are things like, you know, things like um, dark rap. You know, and there's, it's it's amazing to think about these slithers of genre. Yes. And they have their own type of audience and engagement. And the things that they do with that audience isn't about trying to sell out the Madison Square Garden. It's about going to these small places that actually really have engagement with people because they end up doing things like buying all of the merch taking them on and helping to fund their tours. They do things very differently than, right. than the popular models of what we're seeing today. So, again... Weird discussion, weird digression, but you no, get me. No, it's not. No, this, digre- this is the discussion because uh, this is the future. And I just read uh, what Mondelez just launched a new um, product. Hmm. So when I say I wanted to calibrate it, I want to push it to these 
big brands that are used to mass media, mass fame. So when somebody walks into a supermarket aisle, they go, oh, of course, I'm familiar with Oreos, so I'm going to just pull this one off the shelf. Mm. What you're suggesting is, I think, a challenge to that because I need somebody, if I'm a packaged goods manufacturer, I need somebody who is within my tribe, within my sliver, as you called it, uh, who knows it. And I don't know if I can afford deep slivering. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. But you know what? If you don't, somebody will. So, you know, I know your series is called Disruptor, but Mm. brands that are at the top of the tree, that are bloody bit disrupting while they're at it. Because if they're not, they are being disrupted. Mm -hmm. And technology is a really good entree to do that. And if you think about big marketplaces, and the obvious ones are what Uber's done. You know, Uber have done an amazing Mm -hmm. job for transport. And they're a software company, Mm -hmm. the largest taxi company on the planet, and they're bloody software. They own cars. They don't own cars, bro. Airbnb, look what they've done to travel. You know, imagine being the Hilton Hotel Group. But the fame, the fame for these brands. Now, Airbnb, arguably, you know, we've done creative for them. We've actually done uh, mass, mass communications for them. Mm. But Uber has not. Uber's got a new CMO now. Uh, she's got a big task in front of her. Yeah. Does she go to mass media? And that's, but, that's what I mean by fame. Uh, no, I'm getting – so let me tell mm. you where I think the fame can happen. So I think it's, it happens in slithers of where it could really move the brand forward while they're trying to figure out how this niche works. So I think you need mass. Because otherwise the, brand's, the brand, the product, is never going to get funded mm-hmm. or become popular to consume and never have a future. I completely agree. The flip side of that is how does it stay relevant mm-hmm. once it actually starts to do that? So if you look at what Coke did with personalization cans, you know, the ability to buy a Rob can, mm-hmm. you're not going to buy one. You're going to buy 50 of them probably. Right. But it's personalized. Now, from what I believe is that they had to flip their paradigm in production to achieve that can because, as you know, the cans are printed before the Coke goes in it. Now – or I think it's reversed, but they had to reverse it to yeah. make sure they get personalization. Oreo, within the Mondelez, did the same thing. They've done a hyper-personalization package mm-hmm. for Oreos. So if you can go you can go in and buy 10 packs of Oreo in the blue that we all know, or you could go out and buy – I could buy a pack of 10 for about 15 bucks, by the way. It's expensive as hell. But I could have a hyper-personalized packaging Shingios. that makes me feel like it's more I'm more connected to that brand than what I'm consuming, which means that if somebody comes along with a better cookie that tells me that they've got whatever – It's not black, white, black. It's white, black, white. And I've decided this thing's going to take over the planet. I have an affinity to that brand because they've done something that's really niche. They've done something that's personalized. Because here's the deal. I think the challenge today is that if you don't think, and and by the way, we could challenge this till the cows come home and how do you deal with it? I don't know because what we've done is we deal with high volume, little margin. Where what we need to make sure is that we have margin in these products to do things that are really unique. Mm-hmm. And if you don't believe in that, look at the retail model. I mean, retail's taken a hit. Yes, it has. But it hasn't taken a hit because people just want to consume fast fashion. They've taken a hit because people want to they want things to be hyper customized, mm-hmm. hyper customized, personalized, and I want it to be high service. Mm-hmm. And by the way, brands can't react to that because they're out there manufacturing clothes six, twelve months ahead. Not three weeks. Except beta brand. I don't know if you know. Except that. for beta brand or Zara. I mean, Zara actually can produce a yeah, product. Zara or H&M. Yeah, yeah. But, but the Zara model is that they empower store managers in global locations to make decisions on merchandising. So it's not about hierarchical mm-hmm. merchandise. It's about what matters to people in that marketplace. That's horizontal, bro. And the other flip side of that is, you know, can you do these little slithers? I actually think you have to think about these little slithers mm-hmm. because it, that's where you're going to get brand affinity. So if I look at brand blindness, if I'm going to not look at all this mass media, mm-hmm. 
I haven't had a TV in 25 years, so I have no idea what the hell's going on in that space. But, I, you know, commercials are still running and they're still crappy at the whole. But stories around them are incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, 30 TV spots are an easy way to run. But a three-minute spot is incredible. And that story could – it can't be told on telly because nobody can afford that spot. But what I'm saying is that whether it's billboards, magazines, TV, radio, and the five or six other places that we've traditionally put brands – the social platforms have become the new mass. Mm-hmm. We're not engaging with it properly. So then we all think that native advertising is going to be the win. And then everything looks homogenized when it comes to advertising. And then the only thing that cuts through is somebody sticking a bloody statue down on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which could have been done a thousand years ago. I know. I, I think know. that's pretty courageous. And people talk about it as, you know, if it continues. To, and somebody said to me recently, that's a stunt, dude. You're never going to, we're not going to talk about that in 12 months. I have not seen an ad, as far as I can see, probably live in MoMA or the Chicago Museum or, you know, I, I suspect that thing's going to go on tour and that's still going to be sponsored by the same company yeah. and maybe they're now in the art business and, you know, who bloody knows? But I think it has really quite amazing extensions beyond slapping up a logo somewhere on a piece of mass media. Well, I think what you say here is really fascinating. Number one, I love this, social is the new mass. Social media Niche. Niches and new mass. Niches and new mass, but social media is is all, mass, is, is mass oh, yeah. media. Mm-hmm. I think those are two really important things. And I think what you say about the uh, State Street here is very true because it's a sliver. It's a universal idea told to a sliver of the population, and then that sliver then goes mass. And I think if you parallel that to uh, what we we're talking about with Zara or H and M, or even you know Beta Brand to a certain extent, it's sliver dialogue that then turns into potentially uh, wider stuff, wider distribution. I mean, it's really going to wreak havoc on the supply chains. But it'll also maybe enable people to have a better livelihood because we're worried about the margin at that point and not just trying to make sure we squeeze margin to get mass. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's less about mass consumption. It's about conscious consumption. Mm So, And by the way, that's kind of a scary topic because people are thinking, well, what do we do about all this retail? Do you really need to consume all of that stuff? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know, man. I just mm. don't. It, and then, by the way, it all becomes homogenized. It all starts looking the bloody same. Yeah. And that's not what we want. And by the way, if it stays that way, punk would have never been discovered or invented. You know. So I think that's where the disruption has to happen, which is we get to a tipping point where it all kind of feels the same, and then it flips. Well, I think that was the magic of punk. We can, we can go there for one second. The, the <laughs> magic of punk was mass customization because you had – the tribe was yeah, was disrupting right. fashion, mm. uh, but you did it in your own way. It yeah. was your own bit of what you could do with a scissor and a uh, and a safety pin. And that comes down to this thing. I, I fundamentally believe brands are starting to get this, which is it is about customization, but it's also about personalization. Mm-hmm. So customization comes after personalization. Personalization is we know this is a product that you're going to love. But how do you want this product to be loved? You know, if you buy a Mini, you can do customizations till the cows come home. Mm-hmm. You buy an Audi, you can probably only customize it four different ways. Right. And so I think there, there's a, so there's a badge. There's a real. And by the way, you know, Mini can get ten thousand people to sit up on a two week trip around America or something. That's pretty powerful for a car that's like thirty grand. Yeah. So absolutely. you know, I, I I just think there's a there's a there's some real value and power if brands want to stick out and exist over time to understand what affinity looks like and, and what, does, what their contribution is. I also love brand story. You know, I, I think, you know, some of the most courageous brands of the past are ones that 
have killer stories as to why they started. Mm-hmm. They may have lost their way now, but it's a good time to come back to those stories. Oh, I agree. In fact, uh, you know, we work with, with, with Michelin, and uh, the Michelin brothers, these guys were super disruptors. I mean, these guys were adventure, adventurers and, uh, wow. uh, you know, beyond just, the, hey, we're manufacturing this thing for cars. These guys really, you go back to Louis Vuitton, these guys loved travel. They loved defying yeah. gravity. They loved, you know, this is a very spirited comp- uh, company. One thing I wanted to cover, too, is a little bit about your journey. How how does a guy from Australia become a digital prophet? Yeah, it's a, well, firstly, the title made up. And I'll get to that in a second, but no. <laughs> but one of ten kids. Yeah, and... one of ten kids. I'm from a little town in Australia, and I'm a designer by trade. Hmm. So you know, my heroes at that time were people like Neville Brody. You know, the font he's, he's fonts even today. I just I love font, man. I love kerning. I'm actually looking at your font right now, wondering whether kerning is absolutely right. I need to think about that. Little, but I do a, think it's a little wide on the letter spacing. It's a little, it? a little bit, just yeah. a hair, particularly just, between the word spacing there. But. Just a hair. Well, that's why I'm glad that uh, you can't see anything here on the podcast. And there's also, right. yeah, there's no ascenders that we can't really pick on being at all uppercase. But anyhow, so love, love, love. Sure, surely we digress <laughs> on this uh, sans serif journey here. But here's the deal, man. I'm, I'm an old school designer, and I was the last school of traditional print. And, uh, you know, I was told that, you know, the creative industry was dead because the year as I graduated, desktop publishing came out. Hmm. The school replaced themselves with Macs. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm not trained in this. So, so you get very... your diploma, you sort of look back and go, wait, oh, wait, 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 wait yeah, what? Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> and, you know, by the way, it took a hit because people had whatever, man. They had 150 fonts and they had 16.7 million colors and suddenly everyone's a designer and yep. laser printers were all the rage and no one needed beautiful Kern typography fonts done by bromide backrooms and paste-up boards. But, you know, I, I taught myself computers. But you, yeah, I mean, you're very modest because I do feel that when I see your presentations and I talk to you, you are living a few steps ahead. You're yeah. in dark mirror world. And Oh, I'm actually, I'm just very fortunate, to be fair, Rob, and I'll, I'll talk about this in a minute, but let me finish this trajectory, which is my part-time job was the evangelism, which is now my full-time job. Mm. But there are too many evangelists. I mean, Google has them, Microsoft has them. Yahoo had them, I think. I'm like, screw it. I'll just come up with a brand and it's, I'll come up with a title. I'll call it Digital Profit. Ha ha. And, <laughs> and it's great. And here's why. Because the industry is such a changing moment. You know, I don't want to call myself a creative director or, mm. you know, so what? I just wanted the industry is fun. The industry is creative. And I came up with Digital Profit. And yeah, man, it's going to stay with me until the day I die. But I- here's, here's what's interesting about the future piece is that I'm fortunate to have a circle of people. So how, how do I uh, look ahead and, and stay, stay abreast? It's not about the mass media. I have a circle of people who are, we can bounce ideas around. Hmm. And they can see what they're up to and I can see what they're up to. And we communicate and it's very closed and it's wonderful. It's actually, it, the best way to do that is person to person. God bless right, it. Right. But what I do think is incredible about this whole dynamic is that it's very narrow cast mm-hmm. to end up, in the popular, because when it hits the internet, it's old news by then, isn't right. it? Right. But uh, that's kind of the, the 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 good fortune that I have. And by the way, I hang out with people that are different than me. Mm. You know, I hang out with architects, and I hang out with you know, I'm married to an artist. I I'm, I hang out with musicians. I'm a musician myself, but I hang out with people who help move culture forward. Because if you see the way that culture is formed by the people that create the culture, everybody else wants to invest in it. Mm-hmm. New York City is a classic example of that. Mm. I mean, you know, and you've seen New York change dramatically. Yeah. I mean, you can't go from 125th Street to Battery Park without seeing the same stuff, you know? And I think from my perspective, 
to get away from homogenization, you need to actually relate to people that have created the culture, not invest in it. You have to find out what they're doing and where they're going. Because if all the creative class are moving, where are they going? I want to know where that tribe's going. What are they talking about next and how are they interacting? So for I me, think they're going to Astoria. I think they've had it with Brooklyn. <laughs> Brooklyn's done already. I think they're going to places like bloody Detroit again and other yeah, places. Yeah, I, I, I feel that in Detroit. I was just there. Me too. I Totally. I think it's amazing. I, I feel that. Now, uh, so right now you're digital profit at Oath. You want to just talk a little bit about what you're up to? Yeah. So Oath is you know combining Verizon bought AOL, which was a great acquisition from our perspective because they gave my boss, Tim Armstrong, the purse strings to continue running that organization as a media outlet. And recently, you know, Verizon bought Yahoo. So we're bringing Yahoo and AOL together, two of those sort of founders, heritage businesses of the internet, and bringing that together as a new organization. And honestly, if, if you know, between us, at the end of the day, the brand of AOL or the brand of Yahoo doesn't do the justice of bringing those two companies together. And that's where Oath, Oath was formed. And it's a value-based company. It's also a good one because, you know, it gets an eyebrow raise. People weren't really sort of expecting us to come up with a brand like that. But the thing I like about it is that it is values-based. So, but, but by the way, are you going to keep the brand AOL? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yahoo? But Oath is a B2B brand. Ah. So when people place orders with us, they were not, they're not placing with AOL or Yahoo. They're, they're placing with Oath. So it's very much, uh, it's very much the underbelly. It's the soil that allows the farm to grow. It's not – you won't be seeing Oath, obviously. It's there to empower these other great brands we have in the portfolio like Tumblr and Makers mm. and AOL.com and Yahoo. And, well, we love Tumblr know. over here at TBWHI Day in New York. Brilliant. Yes, we're a big Tumblr people. Were you is, ever on radio? That's good. No. Because your back announcement just then was pretty amazing. No, no. I, I, I've played radio a lot, you know, oh. listen to it. <laughs> I love I love radio. I you have do. a good you have a good voice for radio. Bro. Well, good. Well, thank you. I have a good face for radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now, uh, before we let you go, um, mm. talk to us about Shangy from Mr. Show. Oh yeah, yeah. Look, the Netflix. Yeah. God, our that was... friend Mr. Bob Odenkirk and uh, David Cross. So here's the truth: I had no idea who those characters were. Somebody gave me a heads up and said, "Hey, dude, you're being spoofed." I'm like, "Dude, I get spoofed every day. Awesome." Like, no, no, on a Netflix TV show, dude, from people that give a shit about TV or the big screen, you're being spoofed. I'm like, wait, what? They were gentle. Like, I, thought, I thought they did a nice job. I think that, you're being spoofed. I'm like, well, hang on, hang on. So when it came out, I avoided it because I've had some highs and lows. And I thought, oh, I'll just avoid it. And my babe said to me, honey, we should watch this thing. I'm like, sure, okay, let's watch it. It was good, I thought. It was chuckling. It is fantastic. <laughs> and not only that. It's bang on. And, and the, the thing is, I could sat back and thought, oh, God, this is just what a horrible situation to be in. But I, I'm completely flattered because, one, they're not in our industry. And I think in that same episode, I think there was Richard Branson and Einstein that took a swing at. I'm like, <laughs> I'm good, dude. If they want to take a swing at that, I'm cool. Listen, I, I, th- I think you've broken through because I think you're a guy with content. There's one last piece that we typically do, which is we ask um, our guests – uh, what's one piece of advice for somebody? So for, for one of our listeners, let's say we have a listener who says, wow, digital profit. Like, I kind of want to be a digital profit. What's one piece of advice? Today's, today's Monday. What should they do Tuesday? Well, firstly, be highly curious. Understand what human behaviors are doing and how, how that changes and what you think that, that, that change is going to look like as you forecast. Mm. So in forecasting is really simple, isn't it? It's understanding... What, what are the things that are going on that nobody really sees? When does the innovation look like it's starting to hook? 
And when does it become mass? So how do you get ahead of that? So that's the one thing about the forecasting, which is always really hard because you can never forecast the weather correctly. So it's, it's, it's challenging to have that. It's easier now with dark sky. The second, ahead. indeed, dark sky indeed. The second thing is you have to have a point of view. And that point of view has to, it has to be grounded upon something that you actually believe in. And so that's where that human truth comes into it for me. And I would say that the last piece, and this is just worldly advice, which is, and somebody gave this to me a long time ago and I started my career, which was look to the person at the top of the organization and figure out whether you like their life, not their job. Hmm. And if you do, if you find that person to be inspiring, then maybe that's who you should work for, not the job. That's amazing. All right, Shingy. Well, as always, wonderful to chat with you. I think uh, my digital prophecy is that uh, this is going to be one of our most popular podcasts. (laughs) So thank you very much. Uh, Well, at least there'll be two downloads, you and I. Thanks very much indeed, my friend. (laughs) Thank you. Awesome. You've been listening to the Disruptor Series podcast brought to you by TBWA Shy Day New York. Craving more disruption? Visit us at tbwashyatny.tumblr.com.